Hello, and welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and this week we're offering two episodes on my book, Embracing Rhythms of Work and Rest. And in both of these episodes, we're talking about Sabbath as resistance. Earlier, I talked with Drew Jackson, and today I'm talking with Cole Arthur Riley. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, This Here Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us. She is also the creator and writer of Black Liturgies, a project that integrates spiritual practice with Black emotion, Black liturgy, and the Black body. I'm really excited about my conversation with her about her work and her writing. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Cole Arthur Riley. Welcome, Cole. So good to have you on the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast today. Thanks for having me. I feel very honored to to be in conversation Mm -hmm. with you. I was mentioning before we were on the air that at the very end of the writing of my own book, I actually was working in the final edit version, and I didn't even think I was allowed to offer any more edits to the book. But your book came across my path right at that moment where I was looking at the final versions of my own book. And I had been thinking a lot about the whole question of whether or not the Sabbath practice is a practice that goes along with privilege. That mm-hmm. question had been raised in my reader process in the writing of my book. And and I was kind of shocked. I kind of jumped back because I thought, wow, I mean, I know the biblical, the Judeo-Christian roots of Sabbath, and I know it wasn't about privilege. It was actually the other way around, that the right. Sabbath was given to an oppressed people as a sign, symbol, and reality of their of their liberation from oppression and a movement towards equality and equity in the way that they were doing their lives, as well as an opportunity to reclaim their identity in God on God's terms for them versus what the Egyptians had in mind for them. So I was so glad to come across a couple of quotes in your book about rest and how that is experienced within the black community, because I just had such a sense within me that Sabbath keeping is not about privilege it's actually about liberation and that we need yes. to get back into that that conversation about how Sabbath delivers us, mm-hmm. has delivered people, does deliver us now from the different kinds of bondage that we're in. So thank you so much for your work. And my, my editor was really kind to let me slip those couple of quotes in as the very <laughs> last thing I did on this book. So before we begin our conversation, tell us a little bit about Black Liturgies. I think our listeners would love to know about that. Tell us about your work, um, mm-hmm. and then we can transition into the main conversation. Sure, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a writer, and in the, the summer, the, that, that first year of the pandemic, the summer of 2020, I began a, a project called Black Liturgies online that really connects things like Black emotion and black embodiment and yeah black history i would even say with the practice of written prayer with a kind of liturgical framework so i'll often connect quotes from you know black thinkers who have formed me with you know breath prayer or a kind of prayer of the people so to speak and i've started started sharing those little liturgies that that summer and have continued to do that and the community just continues to grow which I'm really grateful for. And 
yeah, and and I have been able to continue my other writing as well. I feel like mm-hmm. Black liturgies opened up the path for me to write this here flesh and mm-hmm. gave me so many more literary opportunities than I would have had. So I'm, I'm also <laughs> grateful for the community in that mm-hmm. way. But yeah, I mean, at the heart of Black liturgies, there is, I would say there is a lot of resonance with your work around Sabbath mm-hmm. and your, your book around Sabbath, because I talk a lot about rest and kind of resisting you know, the, the experience the exploitation, societal exploitation of black bodies Mm. that we were contending a lot with the summer of 2020. There was a lot of kind of racial distress that people were contending with in a meaningful way for the first time. Of course, black people had been contending with that, but I think more people entered the conversation that, that summer. And so a lot of my work was trying to meet the kind of trauma of the summer of 2020 with Mm -hmm. a, a, kind of restful space and a place that reminded people that we we need time to breathe, Mm -hmm. we need silence, we need reflection and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, and to have, to be offered a way to pray when things are so hard and so distressing that you don't know how to pray Mm -hmm. seems like such a gift. And it seems like that's the gift that you were trying to give at that time was that many people, we didn't know how to pray about what we were seeing, didn't know how to enter into it in any sort of spiritual way or a way of opening to God in the midst of such harsh realities. Yes, And so it seems like your work is a gift in that way, that it guides us into a way of being with God, even in the midst of these very, very harsh realities that are so disturbing to us on so many levels. So thank thank you you for that work. Yeah, I I hope, I hope that that people are experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And I think people are really hungry for it. And people have asked, you know, how and why do you think the Black Liturgies community has grown and so quickly? And I think, you know, no small part of that is just this hunger for a different kind of space, you know, a space that isn't always, you know, driven by the headlines and driven by the the tragedies that are occurring, but a space that kind of really feels contemplative. I think people are hungry for that without even having language for what, I mean, I was hungry for that without even necessarily having language for, okay, why do I want this space? You know, why do I want to create this? Yeah. Well, in the Transforming Center, we pray liturgically and we have from the very beginning. And so I was really drawn even to the phrase Black Liturgies because I value liturgical prayer so much for the very reason that you're naming. And that is that liturgical prayers help us to pray when we don't have our own words, when we don't know how to pray. Liturgical prayers um give us a way to enter in when we're beyond ourselves, you know, when we're so, (laughs) you know, swimming in such deep end of the pool that we don't even know how to even gasp for air, but it gives us a way to pray. So I'm really grateful. Tell me about uh, the title of your book, because I love it, This Here Flesh. Can you say just a little bit about the title? Yeah, sure. This Here Flesh, that actually is a, it's a kind of nod to a scene in Toni Morrison's Mm. novel, Beloved, in the scene, there's this really sacred space called the clearing yes. where, you know, the, the black people are gathering for community. And there's this beautiful, beautiful scene that's really remembered. Um, maybe some of your audience mm-hmm. will be familiar with it, where the kind of matriarch of the book, Baby Suggs, is preparing to give a sermon. 
And she, the, the people are waiting at the perimeter of the trees. They're not in the clearing yet. And she starts calling these different populations to the center. You know, she says, let the, let, let the children come. And then she says, children, let your mom see you dance, you know, and, 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 and let the men come. Men, let your, let your children hear you laugh. I'm, I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. here. And she calls the woman to the center and says, you know, women, cry for the living and the dead. Just cry. And, and, and the women start letting loose. Mm-hmm. And she describes this really beautiful moment where they kind of get tangled up in each other until the men are crying and the children are laughing and the women are dancing. And then they collapse in this clearing to hear Bibi Shugs give her, give her sermon finally. And it's not, you know... Morrison actually writes like she didn't tell them to go and sin no more. This kind of traditional, this traditional gospel message. <laughs> she gives this beautiful speech that you know begins with, "In this here place we flesh, flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass, love it, um, love it hard." And so she. Uh, gives that goes on to give this beautiful sermon about the the necessity and loving your physical self, which I think connects with mm-hmm. a lot of what we're talking about here. This necessity of honoring the body, you know, l- love your heart, love your liver. She's, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yonder they don't love your liver. They'll, you know, yeah, love your neck. Yonder they don't love your neck straight and unnoosed. And she's kind of offering this counter to this system of exploitation and slavery that the people are subject to offering this sacred contrast of, okay, well, what does it mean to honor our bodies and honor our physical selves in a society that doesn't do so? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this here flesh, I love that. Uh, love your flesh when other people aren't. It's your job, our jobs, you know, to probably lead the way and guiding other people to love us in our physical mm-hmm in our physical selves and for us to then be called to love others in their physical selves as well. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And, and, you know, you mentioned in the beginning about the kind of the problem of privilege and, mm-hmm. and in the conversations around Sabbath and rest, which I've heard too, I've encountered mm-hmm. that a lot. People push back against you know, my writing mm-hmm. all the time. Cause they think like, they, they say, what are you, what are you asking of people? There are people who can't do this. Mm-hmm. And this scene in, in that book, this scene of the clearing is such a, you know, necessary answer to that. Like, this is the kind of ultimate representation of like a lack of, pri- a lack of privilege, a lack of w- free will. And even still, the message is, what does it mean to rest? And I, I think about that often because, you know, it can seem almost cruel at times to ask people to rest and participate in the Sabbath. And I've started to think, okay, well, and I want to know your thoughts on this as well. And I I read the the chapter that chapter three that addresses this somewhat, but yeah, what does it, what does it mean to kind of present the Sabbath from a compassionate standpoint, as opposed to like a finger waving, like you're not resting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been in spaces that do that, that just are kind of critical of people Mm -hmm. who lack the the practice of of rest and Sabbath. What does it mean to enter that with compassion instead and say, you know, I know the cost, you know, I know the cost of taking Mm -hmm. a day off when you're struggling to make ends meet and to to honor that first as opposed to kind of rushing to the solution 
But yeah, I'm curious uh, with your own thinking as you've kind of thought about the role of privilege in Sabbath, how you've reconciled, how you've reconciled that either biblically or just Mm -hmm. experientially. Well, first of all, I want to say that the experience of a legalistic approach to Sabbath is part of my history with Sabbath, which is why I kicked it to the curb for a very long time. And I tell that part of my story in the first chapter of the book that it was in that sort of critical condemning you can't do anything you want to do. There's no delight in it. It's just a very legalistic thing. So I had that experience. So then I really didn't want to practice Sabbath in that way. And so I didn't, even though I was leading in many other spiritual practices, that one was one I was actually resisting for a very, very long time in my life. And also because I wanted to keep achieving, I think it's really important to acknowledge that many times we don't want to practice Sabbath because we're so defined by our achievements that we can't stand a day where we're not defining ourselves by our mm-hmm. achievements. So it means you're confronting actually some of the worst in you when you when you con- consider practicing a Sabbath. But I, I love your use of the word compassion. And I haven't, I haven't been in conversations where we brought that word to the Sabbath practice, but I have experienced that, that, that part of what can draw us into the Sabbath is that we start to have compassion for ourselves as limited beings. as God created us to be. And so there's another, maybe it was in this chapter where um, Kelly Capick talks about um, the fact that our limitations are part of how God created us. They are not a surprise to God that we are limited, you know, and that we need, we need compassion in that very place where we are limited human beings. And so to be compassionate towards ourselves when we experience our limitations, to be compassionate towards others and their limitations is, I love the word compassion as you've introduced it to this conversation, because I think it's really an expression of compassion for mm-hmm. humanity in its limitedness, you know? Yes. So that's really beautiful. And, and for me, the Sabbath always takes me to a more tender place rather than the hard driving lives that many of us live. On the Sabbath, we experience tenderness towards our our human selves, you know, towards our bodily selves, um, towards these vessels that do need to stop. And it it's a it's a beautiful thing to finally at some point feel it, you know, mm-hmm. feel tenderness, feel compassionate for ourselves and others in our humanity. And that's a part of what it's fostered within us in a Sabbath practice in a really beautiful way. I do think that a rigorous study of Scripture on this topic does take you there as well. Mm-hmm. The purpose for which God created Sabbath, which was to elevate our humanity beyond just our achievements and, and our performance and how we can produce, but instead to communicate honor just in our being versus our doing is definitely embedded in God's intentions for us in the gift of Sabbath. And then, you know, to be in the, in the story of the Israelites and to see that, that Sabbath was something that was given to them prior to the Ten Commandments. It was more than just a commandment. It was God sharing God's very best self mm-hmm. with the Israelites and saying, this is a, a bit of goodness that I have for you that you haven't gotten to experience yet. I can't wait to share this with you. Cannot wait to share with you a way of life that's more sustainable and that has more delight in it and has more of a sense of agency in it. So it's all of that that has caused me, in the face of 
you know, this resistance that has to do with the idea of privilege to say, no, that's not what it was about in the beginning. And we have to return to God's intentions, what God meant when God gave the Sabbath versus letting our own cultural ideas twist it to be something Mm -hmm. other than what God gave us. Is that your experience as well? What is your experience of having been drawn to the Sabbath the way that you articulate it so beautifully? How did you come into this practice? I, I mean, I don't come from, you know, a long line of restful people, sadly. My grandma, I think, my, my talk about her in the book, my grandmother had a kind of grasp on what it means to just rest and play and, you know, wonder and delight. Wouldn't it be unusual to just kind of catch her staring off you mm-hmm. know, at some rock or leaf or something? She was just like that. But I think most of the people that I admired growing up, you know, my father and my uncle and my, my aunts, they, they were, they were hustlers, you know, mm. they were, they were trying to make it. They yeah. were trying to survive. My dad was a, a single father, a single teen father of two little girls. And he will tell you, you know, I've, I've always been, I, I've never, he says, I've never been the smartest person in the world in the room but I could always outwork anyone. Mm-hmm. I could outlast anyone. And that was kind of his like badge that he wore with, you know, he had insecurities around intellect, mm-hmm. around all of these things. But he thought, if I can just work hard enough. And so I, I grew up watching my, my father just work himself mm-hmm. to death, work himself into addiction, you know. And as much as I want to say I, I learned immediately, I think it took my own journey of kind of exhaustion and, yeah, thinking, contending with my own self hatred, frankly, to really confront. Okay, I need, I need this. And when I, I'm 32 now, when I was 26, I became sick. A number of neurological disorders, and yeah, a lot of appointments, a lot of lying in bed all day, and uh, as a kind of coming into a chronic illness, really showed me things in myself that I couldn't ignore you know i i didn't i i had to rest i was almost forced into it Mm. and in that kind of forced posture i think i learned a lot about the beauty of it Mm. the beauty of really being attentive to my body and my own needs and i'm not you know romanticizing chronic illness of course but there was something in it for me that like uh, some kind of swing for me that happened some kind of shift that happened for me mentally and and in my body where i knew if I keep living the way I'm living, overworking and, you know, not paying attention to my physical self, mm-hmm. I will not make it, yeah. you know? So kind of converse of, in the converse of what my father was trying to do, if I don't mm-hmm. keep working, if I don't keep grinding, I'm not going to make it. I realize actually that, that the exact opposite is true and the former is a really sinister lie, I think, that society trains us in. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, how do you respond when you said that there, you've got naysayers in your own life that challenge your writings about this issue of rest and the value that you give to it? How do you respond to them? How are you with them when they challenge you in that way? Yeah, I mean, I think I used to be a bit defensive, <laughs> if I'm honest, but I, as time passes, I'm learning just to be slow you know i i i feel the sense of urgency around people beginning to rest and you know beginning to take sabbath but 
a kind of slow approach of mm -hmm. curiosity, of, you know, of fear and an acknowledgement of, you know, like I said before, that very real risk. Instead of trying to defend my own point, I try to almost practice rest as I'm advocating mm -hmm. for it and think this can take time. And so first, you know, let me find out what the, the fear is and let me acknowledge that as a real thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, rest is can do beautiful things we know like biologically um psych psychologically but also it can take us to places that we wouldn't otherwise go and some of those places are really terrifying some of the memories that rest can take you in are really terrifying and some of the loneliness some of the like i said the fears all of those things i think are confronted in rest it's not just this kind of la 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 practice of, you know staring at the clouds all day although that's part of it for me another part is a very real consideration of the places that stillness takes the human mind yeah. you know and to acknowledge that to a person to say I, I i understand that this can take you to places that you're not ready to approach how do we do it slowly or i understand that you know you're afraid of making rent and i don't want to like minimize that because I've stepped into some degree of privilege where I get to choose a lot mm -hmm. of when I do work and when I don't. So just acknowledging those things, I think, really helps and kind of puts people's defenses at ease and kind of puts my own ego where it needs to go as well, which has been helpful. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you've acknowledged the, fa the fact that the Sabbath and choosing to rest for that period of time can take us to places that are very painful to acknowledge because I address that in this book and I had not addressed it in some of my other writings on Sabbath because that has been my experience too is that when you do step away from work and distraction for 24 hours, it, it does open you up to some of the depths and to the abysses yes. in your own soul, things that you're able to keep out of your awareness by staying so busy on the Sabbath you know, you're present to it. And it is really, really challenging. And I and I think we can understand people who whose resistance, they might not even be able to articulate it the way that you just did, that there's a fear of what they will have to face if they unplug mm -hmm. and move back from distractions. And yet that is part of the unconscious resistance to Sabbath is I don't want a day where I have to face what's really real in my own mm -hmm. life and my disillusionments and my anger and my emptiness and my brokenness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that in your own practice, you've had to really face some of that yourself, which is how you know to even name it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think, you know, I think busyness, perpetual busyness kind of, um, yeah, saved me from a lot of my own interior world mm -hmm. for a long time, you know, and when I became sick, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't mm -hmm. experience that, you know, those distractions in the same way. I started to confront my, myself, my own selfhood, my interior dialogue and all of those things in a very real way when all mm -hmm. you can do is just lie in bed all day, yeah. you know, you, you have to go to those places. And so that yeah, was difficult and it still is at times, but I think a, a pattern of rest, you know, it eventually it eventually is also a pattern that's inclusive to healing and to yeah. you know contemplation that kind of takes us from being trapped in those places of of trauma or grief mm -hmm. or fear or anger yeah 
What encouragement would you give to people who are listening right now and saying, oh, I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen for me. (laughs) If I enter into a Sabbath practice, I am pretty sure that I'm going to have to face myself in my interior dialogue and think, what encouragement do you have for people who are feeling that fear even right now as we're listening? And what did you do for yourself when you were in those moments where it was hard to be in that quiet, restful restful place? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say that avoidance, you know, there's always a toll. Avoidance takes its toll and even things, you know, memories and fears that you think that you're good at avoiding are actually you know, living out in the body somewhere, you know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're existing somewhere. And there's this, a book called The Body Keeps the Score, mm-hmm. which many people are familiar with and talks about just the, the, the cost of avoiding and of trying to remain numb to so much of the, the difficulties and the traumas that we faced. And it also explains and, you know, more and more we're learning this and in, in psychology and epigenetics and that 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 these things that we've lived through these things that we've survived are actually having an effect on the body so i guess i would say is you're not you're not avoiding it as much as you think and you're not really approaching what you seek you think you're approaching peace and regulation by avoiding those places but you know down the road i think those those hidden things those those secret places we hesitate to go they'll always haunt us you know if if we don't open that door and you know with my own journey i've learned okay i don't have to always do that alone and it can actually be really mm-hmm. detrimental to my own welfare to do it alone. And so, you know, I would ask people listening, if, if you're afraid of that, if you're afraid of what true rest and stillness, where that will take you, who are the people that can journey with you? Uh, whether that's a therapist, whether that's a really emotionally intelligent friend, <laughs> really emotionally intelligent and curious friend who can help you process some of what you're exploring. So you're not just diving into the depths alone. And, and so you don't get stuck there. All right. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of community because for me, that's one of the things that I have felt has been missing in the Sabbath teaching is that we see Sabbath as being something that's a very private sort of discipline that we kind of do by ourselves. And there's also almost been a conflation of Sabbath with solitude and silence. And that's inaccurate. Like it's inaccurate in terms of how you know, how Sabbath emerged and how God gave it to the Israelites was that he gave it to them in community. It was never intended to be a private discipline that individuals were trying really hard to manage and maintain. Um, What is your experience of Sabbath as a communal practice? Yeah, it's it's hard to find Mm -hmm. people who will journey with Mm -hmm. you. But honestly, um, in my writing, and as I kind of move into more spaces with artists i've found it so much easier to practice even people even artists who you know aren't christian or don't claim a particular spirituality there's this slowness this necessary slowness to art and to creation that i i think has really freed me you know my it's the people in my life who are writing it's the poets in my life you know it's the painters who i 
you know, interact with them. And on any given day, you know, they're not so much concerned with how long they worked in a day. Maybe you resonate mm-hmm. with this as well, Ruth, and as as a writer, you're not so concerned with, okay, I, I, I clocked, you know, my five hours mm-hmm. of writing. You're thinking like, did I write something good? Yeah. Did I write something true? And it's a assessment of quality over, you know, uh, sheer productivity, you know, and the kind of utility, the utilitarian examination of one's work. I think there's not much room for that in, in the lives of artists. And so in communities like that, I feel, and the more I write, I feel this freedom of saying, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, think today. And if I don't pick up a pen, you know, there's still good in that mm-hmm. because I'm not, I, I, I'm not gonna write anything all that good if I'm exhausted. Right. Because when I'm exhausted, I get anxious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and my anxiety doesn't lead to good writing. And anxiety doesn't tend to be the best creative force in an artist's life. And so, yeah, my friends who are artists are always just kind of slow and playful and curious and in a way that I don't see in other spaces. Mm-hmm. That question, did I write any, you know, did I write anything good today or was it good? I, I find that if I just keep pushing and pressing in my work without taking any time to step back from my work, I don't even know what the answer to that question is. I can't even tell mm-hmm. if it's good. It's oftentimes only when I have stepped back from my work and let myself get some rest and then reapproach it that I can even determine whether it's good, you know, yes. <laughs> if I just keep banging away. I, I just lose all sense of whether something has any beauty to it, whether it's, you know, dropped to any sort of a deeper level of expression where I'm actually saying something that is fresh in any way at all. Um, so rest, I think the reason that I titled this book around the issue of rhythms is that I am really convinced it's the, it's the rhythm between the work and the rest is beautiful and good. That one without the other isn't all that great. It's the rhythm between the two. If you rest too much, you can get lazy and feel very empty and all of that. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's hard to re-engage your work if if you haven't take, given yourself a break at all. That rest actually gives meaning to work because you can step back from it, savor the good fruit of it, discern whether it's valuable, you know, in any mm-hmm. real way. Um and then rest, of course, or then work, of course, gives meaning to our resting, too, because you can step back like God did and look at your work and call it good, like really see it mm-hmm. as being good. But that happens in the resting, the ability to, yeah. to say, to see your work and to call it good. Mm-hmm. So. Well, there's a quote from your book that I included in mine and in that quote, and I'll read the whole thing, but you talk about rest as an act of defiance. And I just loved that phrase. You said that when we rest, we do so in memory of rest denied. So you're actually connecting yourself with your community writ large here, Mm -hmm. which I really appreciated. And you definitely here identify that it's, it is a privilege to rest. And at the same time, though, it's a call of God. Rest is an act of God, actually, for us on our behalf. You say, we do so in memory of rest denied. We receive what has been withheld from ourselves and our ancestors. And our present respite draws us into remembrance of those who are not permitted it. You say, when I rest my eyes, I meet those ancestors and they meet me. 
as time blurs within us. They tell me to sit back. They tell me to breathe. They tell me to walk away like they couldn't. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking about your own kind of biblical examination of the Sabbath, and you also situate it in memory mm. and explain that God's situated in, in this practice of remembrance. And, you know, remember you were slaves in Egypt once. Remember, you know, the, the, the I'm the God that pulled you out of slavery. And I, I, I think it's really, yeah, compelling and interesting that we both were led there mm -hmm. in different ways of rest being this practice, this kind of ultimate practice of good memory. It's mm -hmm. not just about dreaming and you know although that's part of it it's also about this journey backward to to confront what god has done and you know my ancestors who were enslaved didn't have the the freedom the liberty to to walk away mm -hmm. at all times they didn't have the liberty to to practice Sabbath in the way that I think God intended them to mm -hmm. and desired that for them. And there's kind of, some, there's something so beautiful about, yeah, this gift, you call it this gift from God being in resistance to that, to say like, this isn't the way, this isn't what I had for you. Mm -hmm. I wanted so much more for you. And and remember that I took you out of that place of change so, so you don't have to travel back there in lived experience but we will revisit the kind of liberation from it and i do that a lot honestly i mm. I, I mean in the past year i've started to really think okay cool that there are things that you have access to that throughout your bloodline people have not always had access to honor that you know honor mm. that and remember mm. what has happened that led you to you know upstate new york where you can walk around in you know, in the, the reeds behind your house, you can walk around the pond because God was preparing a place, like a restful place. And I, I've had to give myself, I don't really love the language of tough love, but uh, I'm lacking better language right now. But yeah, I'd ha I've had to give myself a little bit of tough love in that way to say, you know, to choose bondage when you could choose otherwise and the people who've made you didn't have that same choice. You know, there's there's something really tragic about that mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I need to do better yeah. to honor them. Yeah, yeah and I think what, what stirred, so much stirred in me around that quote, but the fact that you actually experience connection with your ancestors now in practicing a practice that they, they did not have the privilege to practice and that you actually do it in solidarity with those who weren't able to step into that. And you feel it as a time of connecting with ancestors. And I think that's really powerful and an expression of community, right? Like yes. you are experiencing a sense of community on the Sabbath when you allow it to connect you to your ancestors and you say, I'm not going to squander the gift that I have that they didn't get to have. I'm doing this in honor of them. I'm doing it in memory of them. I thought that was just so powerful. And then your, your, the final piece that I quoted here, it's the audacity to face the demands of this world and proclaim we will not be owned. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also needs to be a part of our own 
practice of Sabbath now is to, to realize that when we practice Sabbath, we are saying to this world right now, you do not own me. I am not owned by your values. I'm not owned by your schedule. I am not owned by your consumerism. I'm not owned by somebody else's priorities for me. On this day, I am not owned by anyone else but God himself or herself. <laughs> and I'm proclaiming where I belong, who I belong yeah. to. It's so powerful because I think many of us think that the Sabbath is sort of a soft around the edges sort of a discipline. It's just restful and peaceful and all that. Mm -hmm. I don't see it that way. I see Sabbath as being different than that in its res in its resistance and it's standing up and shaking the fist and saying, I will not be owned. That's not soft. Yes. Yeah, there's something, I mean... I feel like we've we've lost a bit of the heart of of Exodus mm -hmm. when when we approach it that way. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard it presented that way, and I think that's why it can kind of like turn people away sometimes because it's just not something they feel like they can approach. But there's something fierce about it. Yeah. At least when I encounter it in Scripture, like it feels like fierce. It feels um, I feel this kind of protective energy from God toward you know, the people toward, toward the people. And so, yeah, I, I, I resonate with you kind of resisting um, how it's sometimes presented as this kind of easy light thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We wanted to pause for a moment and express our gratitude to our sponsor. Um, the season of our podcast is sponsored by Good Kind. Good Kind is all about helping people cultivate the good kind of habits and holiday practices that allow them to engage with God and one another throughout the year. They have a great tool for Advent and also a Sabbath box to help you practice Sabbath with your family and so much more. So to learn more about them and the products that they make, you can find them at goodkind.shop. Well, as we conclude this episode, Cole and I are going to ask each other one final question, and this little bit of our conversation will be available over on Patreon, so if you're interested, go on over there. Well, it's been really delightful, Cole, to speak with you and get to know you, and um, one of the ways that we like to end our episodes is consistent with what's in the book, and that is at the end of every chapter, there's a section called, what's your, what does your soul want to say to God? Because my belief is that we're not going to enter into Sabbath keeping primarily because we're convinced on a cognitive level or an intellectual level. I think most of us are going to enter into Sabbath keeping because our soul is longing for it. And our soul is wanting to respond to God's invitation. It happens to me, a real practice of Sabbath comes from the soul, comes from the soul place. So I want to end with you and ask you, is there something that your soul is saying to God or wants to say to God or something that's stirring in your soul as we conclude our conversation? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think probably because of our conversation and also just in this season of life, I, I feel like my soul is is very quiet. Like I feel like there is a an absence of sound as it relates to God. And I'm, I'm learning that that's okay. Like I can observe, I can listen and I, I can be without like eloquence, <laughs> without explanation. And sometimes in my meditation, I can get to this place where I'm like, you know, just approaching eloquence and like good language um, and so and i think i used to fear the that silence between me and god and there's this poet i believe her name is carolyn forsch and she says 
the silence of God is God, you know, which is this very mysterious mm-hmm. statement of like, even in that absence, there's connection and, and meaning. And um, I think in a world that's just so loud and like we talked about, we have access to so much noise about what's happening in the world that kind of soul silence has been a bit of a harbor as opposed to something terrifying for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope that that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Is there something that you, your soul is saying to God in this season? Well, I mean, in response to our conversation, I, I really do appreciate and am stirred by your sense of connection with your own ancestors in and through the Sabbath and your willingness to enter into the connection and to see it as being more than just about ourselves, you know, that mm-hmm. the Sabbath locates us in the context of all of our relationships, you know, and I'm not sure that, I mean, I haven't heard it articulated like that as clearly as you've done in your own work. And so I'm, I'm very stirred by that. And I, I, I want to continue to lean into how the Sabbath links us with others, you know, mm-hmm. both our ancestors, but also even how this willingness to acknowledge life in our own bodies connects us with other bodies, with compassion. You know, the word compassion is very stirring to me. And I appreciate your introduction of that word into the conversation, that in entering into the Sabbath for ourselves, we're being compassionate towards ourselves. And as we do that, then we're also able to be compassionate towards others in their bodies as well. And I I just wonder how that could change us and what difference it would make. If we could experience more compassion for ourselves and one another in our bodies, in these physical, the physical existence that we all share, you know? So just this conversation has taken me a a little farther in thinking about how Sabbath continues to solidify connections among and between us all. So thank you for that. And now for those of you who are listening, I'm praying that you will not just rush on to the next thing in your own life, the next task or the next conversation or the next phone call, that you would resist the urge to distract yourself in this moment, but instead you would also listen to what your soul wants to say to God. And that one way or another, with words or with journaling or with just a silent prayer, that you would also allow your soul to speak to God in this moment.